Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. My special guest on the podcast today is best-selling author Joanne Harris. Many people will know Joanne as the author of Chocolat, which was adapted for the screen back in the year 2000, starring Judi Dench and a young Johnny Depp. Aside from her catalogue of full-length novels, many of which deal with folklore and mythology in their themes, Joanne has also penned shorter, folklore-inspired novellas. The third of these, Orphea, was released recently, and that book is the springboard for today's discussion. Joanne's novellas are based around some of the child ballads, a collection of 305 traditional English and Scottish ballads, which were published in anthology form in the 19th century by Francis James Child. At the end of the episode, you'll be able to hear Joanne herself reading an extract from the book. But for now, here is our discussion, recorded online a few weeks ago. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us. It's, it's great to see you and to hear you on this currently quite bright and, and nice Sunday morning where I'm recording. Hopefully it's the same for you as well. Yes, it's lovely here. Good. I'm living in a wood, basically, so I'm as close to nature as you can get. Excellent. And nature has been active recently, very active. Yes, yes, it has. It's that time of year, I think, as well, and, and a good source of inspiration, I guess, for a lot of writing, too. I think so, yes. I think it's important to me to, to not be in a city and be surrounded by people, basically, which yes. is a good thing, because right now, being surrounded by people isn't an option. Well, no, that, that's true. So at least, at least you're well-practiced in it, if nothing else, I guess. Um, so, so thinking about your writing, which is obviously what you're best known for, I, I guess um, a lot of people will know you first from Chocolat because that that um, became such a, a popular hit um, back a few years ago. But maybe some people don't realise that, that you write in other genres um, across the board and, and particularly that you've got a number of titles which intersect with, with the world of folklore, which we're interested in. Um, which of your titles are you particularly um, proud of in that aspect um, as, a, as a folklore genre? I don't really think in those terms. I don't really differentiate and I don't really feel that pride is the word. I mean, I'm very happy to be writing them. I love writing them. Um, I think that child ballads are generally underrepresented outside of the field of folk music. And, and I'm, I'm always a bit surprised at the number of people who, who feel that they know a lot about folklore but haven't heard of child's ballads. Um, I think I'm closest to Orfea because it's a theme that's particularly close to my heart. But I, I love them all and I've really enjoyed working with Bonnie Hawkins on, on these illustrated projects too because I think a lot of adults feel that folklore and particularly illustrated folklore is for children. And of yes. course it's completely not. Not at all, and that's a very big part of it, and that's something that I, I'm going to touch on, I think, in, in a moment, actually. But what, what is it about themes of folklore that particularly interest you as a writer, and, and why have you chosen to use some of those in what you do? Well, I think they're strikingly universal themes, and a lot of them are very startlingly topical. When we look at child's ballads, which are anything but child's play, we can see that actually 
you know, we've got an awful lot of, of stuff that, that actually concerns us currently. There's a huge amount of violence against women. There is abuse. There is you know, terrible suffering. There's disease. Um, there's murder. Um, there are all kinds of, of monsters, basically, whether we think of them as metaphorical or real, waiting to be overcome. And very often, you know, you're told that you should sing in the dark to scare the ghosts away. Well, that's exactly what child's ballads are doing. They are creating a narrative framework for people to, to establish an order agenda, a sort of, um, to, to look at their disordered lives and, and the fear and the things that they can't talk about outside of metaphor and give it a shape and give it music, and give it a direction, and give it narrative, and work through the trauma of it, because actually a lot of these stories are about traumas of one sort or another. Mm, and if that they, makes they them really sound are. gloomy, then yes, they are, some of them, but also some of them are extremely funny and ridiculous, and the humour is dark and comes out in that way. Yes, and a lot of these these tales, of course, have been sanitised, but the, but, but the originals in, in both Grimm's fairy tales and, and the child ballads are much darker than that. Can you just clarify for people who, who don't know them so well, because everybody knows Grimm's fairy tales as a collection. Can you just clarify for people exactly what the child ballads are? Well, in effect, child's ballads are our Grimm's fairy tales. They're a collection of the folk songs of the British Isles in North America, which were collected by a guy called Francis Child and his wife in the 19th century. Some of them are very old. Um, going back to, I think, the 1300s. Some of them are more contemporary to child. Um, most of them are somewhere in the middle. A lot of them exist in different forms. And so you can see how the song has migrated, how it started off in Scotland in the 15th century, and then it went to North America in the 18th century. You can see how the dialects have changed. Sometimes the story has changed. But there are 390-odd of them. And some of them are about characters we know like King Arthur and Robin Hood. Some of them are about very specific regional folkloric characters like Long Lankin. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, they are the story of us. They are the, the alternative history of our culture. And when we look at history books, history books are all written by the people who won the battles, the kings, the philosophers, the, uh, you know, the clerics. But folklore is the history of the people. What was important to the people, and so it's 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 essentially the kind of secret heritage that we have, and we should care about it because it connects us to what we were and and to understand what we are now. It's important to know where we came from. Yes, absolutely, it, it really is, and and they're so important for that reason. So, how how did you first come across this collection, and and why did it speak to you, and and why did you choose to work with it? Oh, I think I've been aware of the child ballads for a long time. I think probably through music, through folk music. And I was aware of them when I was, when I was very young. Um, I'm not sure which one started me off on it because my grandfather had a collection of folk songs in a little book. And some of them he knew the tunes of, and so he would sing them. And it, it just made me curious. And I've been curious about mythology and folklore since I was very small. And so I read up on them and found actually that these songs existed in different forms and were older than I thought they were. And actually there were more of them. So I thought, oh, hooray. You know, obviously everybody must know about this. And then I found that actually, apart from yeah, some folk bands, and you know, you, you will all have, have heard versions of child ballads if, if you know people like Steel Span 
you know, they have used them quite extensively. But it's not always obvious when a band uses a song, the history of that song and the different versions of the song and what it meant culturally. It's, it's you know, to a lot of people, it's just a song. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so are there particular themes, do you think, that run through this collection or, or is it kind of a wide representation of, of people's beliefs at the times that they were collected? I think it's quite broad, but there are repeating themes and, and they are the themes of, of universal folklore, actually, there. The idea that even if you come from nothing, you can become someone. The idea that loyalty and bravery is rewarded the idea that bad behavior and cruelty can be rewarded even in a supernatural way, even if you don't get justice in life, then you will be pursued supernaturally and justice will happen. There's a lot of that going on. There's a lot about the helplessness of women in society and and how that feels. Uh, There's a lot about the abusiveness of men and particularly men in power. Um, there's a lot about dreaming and hoping for love and grief and having to work through grief and bereavement and getting a kind of catharsis from that. All the things that singing is actually therapeutic for. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons I think why song was so and still is so important as part of this genre. Now, you've used this collection before. Um, Orphea is the third of your novellas um, working in this way. Can can you say a little bit about the myths that you chose to use this time and and how you've translated those myths into your plot in this book? Well, my first two were, were closer to the original ballad in the sense that there was one ballad involved. I took the story, expanded it, reinterpreted it, made it gave it a sort of gender twist and and a sort of racial twist to make it more current to a a modern reader and then reset it in a folkloric setting. Now, with Orfea, I didn't quite do that. I started it in a modern setting. I used two ballads as the essential starting point, but they are much less central to the construction of it. So one ballad is King Orfeo, which is effectively a sort of Celtic version of the Orpheus myth, where Orpheus goes into the underworld to get back his wife, Eurydice, um, and fails because he's just too impatient and he turns around when he's not supposed to, sees her and she runs back. Um, But King Orfeo is not the Greek version. It's a very Celtic version. It's set in, in Middle England, effectively, and, and it's, it's rather odd. Um, the other ballad that I used is called The Elfin Knight, which exists in many, many different forms. And you'll even know it, or, or bits of it, from um, Simon and Garfunkel's Scarborough Fair. There's a little bit of a refrain in there, which is directly from one of the versions of The Elfin Knight. And so it's, it's quite a well-known one, but the story is quite weird. Um, And it's very much about seduction and riddles and deceit. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to take these two stories and take the idea of working through grief and start it in London, in real London, and then move it through various levels of reality. And people can read this however they like. They can read it as a fantasy story where basically a woman goes to fairyland and then to the land of death to see if she can rescue her daughter. Or they can see it as a kind of metaphor for working through grief. 
And I wanted to keep it as fluid as possible so that people could see that it wasn't just one thing, that like all folklore and fairy tales, it was a way of expressing something very difficult to talk about Mm. through a series of lenses of perception. So this is effectively the story of a woman who has lost her daughter to suicide and her attempt to to get some kind of catharsis, some kind of um, of peace. So yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the themes are very strong and very powerful. But but reading the book, you can very comfortably um, work with both sides of these themes, with the kind of the fantasy angle, and and with this transition from the real world through into fairyland. Um, yes. And at the same time, you, you certainly what what Faye is going through resonates with you because it, it resonates with everybody on on some level that that kind of grief or loss. But it doesn't make it an uncomfortable read. Of course, it it makes it um, a very natural story to tell, um, and I, I think it works on so many levels. I I absolutely loved reading it, and, and I think. In, in line with a lot of people that I've seen talking about this book, um, read through it quite quickly because because it, the themes do absorb you. Uh, I, I just reached for the book actually while you were talking because you were saying about Simon Garfunkel and you do use that child ballad on the back jacket um, when, when, you've, uh, when you can find me an acre of land, every sage grows merry in time, which of course uh, does instantly sort of make you think of Scarborough Fair and its scansion and, and words. So yeah. You're absolutely right. These things sit in the back of people's minds, don't they? And, and then you suddenly go, oh, hang on a minute. And that's one of the beautiful things about folklore is, is you'll be reading something, listening to something, and suddenly you'll go, oh, hang on, that's like that, and that's like that. And it all draws together, doesn't it? Now, absolutely. And this is why folklore is so fascinating, because it's actually, we, we recognise these things because they have resonance within our lives and our culture. And a lot of the time we don't even realize that we're recognizing them because they're so much embedded in the way we think, which is why it's absurd to try to separate folklore and fantasy and fairy tale from what some of my literary colleagues think of as real writing, because it's not separable. It's like trying to separate the language of the King James Bible. Yes. Whether you believe in it or not. And I don't, and so I, I I do think of it as I do folklore and the, the the folkloric inheritance we have. I think of them as the same kind of language, but used for slightly different ends. It's, and it has informed what we are and how we speak and the way we write poetry and the imagery that we use and the themes that we adopt. And they are all there, and they can be found quite easily if people care to look for them. Yes, and sometimes you don't need to look that hard, do you? I know a lot of my folklore colleagues favour the, the kind of um, Jungian approach, if you want to go into the psychology of it, of, of having yeah, of archetypes and just your subconscious drawing on stuff that as a species resonates with us from, from so long ago. It's a whole different area, but it's absolutely fascinating. Now, you, you talk about this um, transition between the real world and, and the other worlds that Faye goes through from, from London. Um, and obviously there's a very strong representation of the Faye, as opposed to Faye, the protagonist of this story, uh, within Orphea. Um, which, which aspects of 
fey folklore are you particularly drawing on with this story and, and why did you choose to use those aspects? Well, I think I wanted to, to look at a sort of pre-Victorian, pre-Disney version of the fae. I wanted, I wanted my fairies to be dark fairies, um, to, to be the fairies of the, the human subconscious rather than the fairies of, of Victorian children's books and, and cartoons. And, and I think it's, it's always a bit of a challenge when you say you have written a fairy story to get certain people to pay attention because they mm. assume that it's going to be light and twee and sort of a bit nostalgic. I didn't want any of that. I wanted it to be properly challenging. And so I went back to the Celtic um, ideas of, of fairies and fairy land and the idea that it's a dangerous place. And in, in the child ballad, King Orfeo, um, fairy land is very clearly some sort of antechamber of the land of death. And I've always been interested in the idea that there's there's obviously a parallel here between death and, and fae. So I wanted to play with that a little bit and have different levels of descent, if you like, because fae starts off in a, a reality where she's firmly anchored in the mundane. And then she slips into a reality which is almost but not entirely familiar. And then she slips into whoom, fairy tale reality, and that that starts off a journey through, well, through all kinds of different folkloric inheritances. Actually, so we've got we've got fairyland, but we've got Tien and Nog, we've got the land of roast beef, we've got all these other different versions of fairyland that I tried to express that they were all existing in a kind of. Um, <clears throat> In, in, in a sort in, in the same kind of place and that they were all accessed through the same kind of way, which I wanted to depict as a train, a train which goes through all these worlds. And so it's a sort of progression from my, my rune books, which are about Norse myths, mm. where I'm sort of building the idea of not just nine worlds, which would have been familiar to anybody who knows Norse myths, but actually nine worlds plus. It's a kind of multiverse that connects all folkloric possibilities. And so I'm, I'm quite eclectic. I, I sort of choose little bits of pieces of, of different beliefs and different folklore, because actually they're all, they're all pretty much linked by, as you said, Jungian concepts of archetypes and narrative. Um, and they all have kind of very similar character types, which have been adapted to suit the dominant culture whatever that is, but the, the, the figures, the archetypal figures are still very much the same within, within folk tales everywhere. Yes, yeah, so that's just representative of, course, of what actually happened, isn't it? When you look at migratory paths and the way that people travelled around the world in early times and how they took their myths with them and then took on elements and archetypes from the cultures that they were settling in, and that's how all this developed. Yeah. You mentioned the fact that you used to train uh, as, as a passage through this and that was a really interesting choice to me why did you choose to use a train it's not something that you would naturally go oh yeah that fits in with these people I liked it um I liked the way it subverted the idea of the the hero's journey through the worlds because the hero is nearly always on foot or sometimes has a magical steed of some kind and I thought, well, why wouldn't you have an iron horse if you, if you, if you could? I mean, I started off with this train. The, the train is a returning character in my rune books. Um, 
uh, Odin's horse, Yggdrasil, um, Yggdrasil, um, Sleipnir, emerges in a number of different aspects in these books. And one is actually a train. Right. Sometimes he's a horse. Sometimes he's, he's something else. Um, of course, Yggdrasil is also a horse, confusingly. Um, mm. The world tree that connects all the worlds together is, is often referred to in the Norse pantheon as Odin's steed, which suggests that that too is, is a form of transport. And, mm. and because it's never clear in the Norse myths how you travel from world to world, they just find themselves in a different world and you, you, you don't get a strong idea of how they got there. It was just you know, magically and there they were. I got the idea that maybe the world tree itself could be like a railway track um, where <clears throat> spiritually you could travel to and from different worlds along its branches. And of course, railway lines have branches too. And, and I thought, okay, this is nice. And, you know, what if that was also the Milky Way, which the Norse people tended to think of as, as branches of the world tree anyway, as did the South Americans interestingly, and we're getting to another level of folklore here and we're going off on a tangent completely. But I thought, you know what, all these things are directing me to the idea that perhaps I should use a train. And so I have been doing and, and the night train turns up over and over again in my stories. And it's there in, it's there in my upcoming book, Honeycomb too, which is another kind of expansion on this multiverse idea. And it's a hundred stories all set nominally in the same multiverse world. Excellent. It's, it's good to have these recurring themes because, of course, folklore has these recurring themes, so it's quite natural to work in that way. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the illustrations. You referred briefly to the fact that these are illustrated uh, books. Uh, <coughs> and the importance of those illustrations, which, as you say, is unusual in a book that is predominantly written for an adult audience just as much as, as a younger audience. Bonnie, well, it's unusual now, but it didn't used to mm. be unusual. Well, no, all, all books used to be illustrated and it was, um, it was considered very unusual for a, for a novel not to be illustrated originally, but now, of course, it's, it's become, again, it, it's, it's this idea that the, the Victorians introduced that children who weren't able to read a lot of text should have pictures and therefore pictures were for children, which has always seemed to me absurd. It's like saying art galleries are for children. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You're, you're absolutely right. Bonnie's illustrations are, are just wonderful and they enhance the story so much. Um, tell us a little bit about how those illustrations work with your text to present this whole story. Well, when I was writing A Pocket Full of Crows, which is the first of these novellas, and it was not a commissioned piece. It wasn't something that my publishers were aware that I was doing. In fact, I wasn't really aware that I was doing it until I was halfway through it. And I thought, you know what, this is an illustrated fairy book for grown-ups, and it needs to have a certain look to it. Um, because it's written in a very particular way, um, it, it's written in a particular style, which I only use really for these books. Um, which is at the same time 
slightly musical in the way that it's designed to be read aloud. It's also designed to have music put to it. And I've done this before several times with the band. But it's also, it also needs another dimension. It needs illustrations. And I wanted them to be the kind of illustration that I associate with the really classic fairy book illustrators. So, you know, people like Rackham. Um, you know, and, and I, was, I was looking for that. And, you know, there are not that many people doing that style. And I didn't have much time and there wasn't a huge amount of budget. And the illustrators that my publisher suggested were all of a, they were all very good, but they weren't what I was looking for. I wanted something very particular and quite idiosyncratic and something that people might even consider a bit old fashioned looking, mm. but also something that had the capacity to be edgy. So I wanted somebody who could do very good nature representations because there were a lot of animals in a pocket full of crows, animals and birds and flowers. And it was all about um, living within nature. So I needed somebody to do pretty much photorealistic nature drawing, but also to give it a sort of softer, slightly more feminine edge. And I thought, well, you know, the people who did this, they're they're all long gone. Who am I going to get? Um, And then out of the blue, I just got this poster through my letterbox, um, in a tube um, and a little letter from a woman called Bonnie Helen Hawkins who I'd never heard of and she'd never read any of my books but she'd seen me do a YouTube video on folklore and stories and she really liked what I'd said and so she wanted to to give me a piece of her art and it was a very beautiful print it, in fact it's the um, it was the image that ended up as the end pages of a pocket full of crows and it was very clearly um a very intricate piece of work showing Odin as the green man. And this is how I, I saw it. And I thought, this is really interesting. And also, I really like her style. She must be a professional. Um, I wonder if I can get her for this book. And so I contacted her. And she wasn't a professional. And she'd never illustrated a book before. And she was very, very reluctant to do it. And eventually, I talked her into it. And we are now on our third project together. And because we came together outside of the publisher's jurisdiction, um, we got to be friends. We got to talk an awful lot more about the work than an author and an illustrator usually do, Mm. which was great. I really enjoyed this. What I wanted was, because Bonnie is quite anxious, and and even now she's very unaware of of how very talented she is. She was constantly afraid that she would miss a deadline and she would get the sack. So she was always stressing. So I was constantly kind of going back and forth going, you know what, they gave you a deadline, but they don't mean that deadline. You've you've probably got another three months if you need them. Um, I wanted her to, you know, to feel supported. Mm. I think illustrators often don't feel supported by publishers. They often just get the brief and then they're just expected to go off and come up with the goods on time. So I wanted to have that relationship with her. And, and I also wanted her to, to feel free to choose whatever scene she wanted to illustrate rather than be told by the publisher, you must illustrate page 24 in this way because that's not creative and it wouldn't have, I don't think it would have worked. And so, um, so nowadays I tend to talk to her about the book before it's finished. I sent her unfinished bits of work so that she can look at them and get a feel for them because if she had to wait for a finished, edited manuscript to come from the art department, it would cut off like, you know, nine months of her preparation time. And because she works in a particularly intricate way, I don't want her to be rushed. 
And so, yeah, we, we bat ideas to and fro, and, and I think she's just got better and better. Oh, I think the, I think the illustrations in Orfea do so much to enhance the, the text. Um, and to represent this idea of, of transition between the real world and, and the other worlds as well, so that, you know, the, the idea of people turning into butterflies. Yes, that's right. She does this very well, and, and I think she also... She understands intuitively what it's supposed to feel like. She 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 draws, I think, very emotionally, and and she's very well aware of what I mean when I talk about beauty and also ugliness together. Or she's able to give something, for instance, like an image of a butterfly, a kind of sinister twist. Yeah. Or she'll do a beautiful face, but. You know, there'll be mushrooms growing out of the mouth or there'll be, there'll be something growing out of the head. She's very good at this. She obviously, she too likes the, the early fairy tale illustrators that I like. And so it, it's quite easy to get a concept across to her. And sometimes she'll, she'll send me something. She often sends me unfinished sketches or, and she'll go, is this too much? Or is, just this, is this just too weird? And I will always tell her, you know, there's no such thing as too weird. This is just great. Just keep keep on with it. Absolutely. So, Bonnie, when you listen to this episode in a couple of weeks' time, you can stop stressing now. <laughs> she'll fun. not stop stressing, but I hope she'll understand how much I value her input. <laughs> I'm sure she will. Now, you, you've written before on this subject and spoken on this subject before, but I think it's an interesting one that's worth picking up. And, th- and this is your... Uh, ideas of using fairy tales and and these sorts of stories as a key to understanding us as people the the human psychology aspect of the stories absolutely can you say a little bit about about what that means to you well i think we live in a because we live in a post-freudian world we are used to the concepts of psychoanalysis and we're used to the concepts of the conscious and the the subconscious. And these things, even if we've not studied them, are things that we take into account. We assume that, you know, we're subconsciously aware of things, but we're not thinking about them. Now, if we look at the audience of these, these ballads and these fairy tales, they were not aware of these things. They'd never heard of Freud. They didn't know what archetypes were. They didn't know what psychotherapy was. They had no idea why they did things or why they felt things. Um, a lot of, of that was just a mystery or it was magic or it was goblins or it was kittens in the belly um, or it was, you know, melancholia induced by fairy possession. And so there was no language of therapy and fairy tales became the language of therapy. Now, these were people who had difficult lives. They didn't live long. Most of them were very poor. Most of them endured grief and loss and bereavement and sickness and abuse and awful trauma. And how do you process this if you don't have access to therapy and you don't even have a language to go to that enables you to understand PTSD or the grieving process or depression or or whatever? What do you do? You try to create order by telling a story. And the reason that some things can only be expressed through story is that they're just too traumatic. You know, a lot of these stories skirt very close to trauma 
and mental illness. How do you tell a story about being sexually abused? You don't say, I have been sexually abused by my father for years and it's driving me crazy. You don't say that to people around a campfire, but you can talk about a girl in a story who had terrible things happen to her and she had to go through a process and a journey and was eventually saved. And the dragon, which had held her prisoner for all those years, was slain and they were able to rejoice and move on. And all of this is, is, is a way of stepping away from a personal story too traumatic to tell into a metaphor that allows you to work through trauma and, and closure. And I think this is what people were doing. And people still do this. This is why we connect to fairy stories. It's not because we believe in dragons or monsters or any of those things. But it's because we want to know, we want to be reassured that these things can be overcome. And so a dragon in a fairy story isn't, isn't a dragon. It's, it's something else. And we still have monsters. We still believe in monsters. We, they may not be dragons or werewolves, and maybe they never were. But, you know, there, we, there are plenty of monsters around that we, we are quite legitimately entitled to be afraid of. And we are still tearing, telling ourselves narratives to get rid of them now, which is why people do keep going back to fairy tales, and which is why we're still drawn to this process, because it's the secret language of the human subconscious. You don't need to have studied Freud or Jung to understand that the story you're telling is more than the story you're telling. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's the way you use these stories, isn't it? And, and retell them and repurpose them if necessary that, that does that. Um, which, which with Orfea is, is kind of what you're doing in a way. Of course, this is a slightly regendered telling of these stories. Uh, and, and that's something that I definitely want to um, explore for a moment. I think it's such an important aspect. Um, it's something that we've worked with ourselves, my wife's play, which, for example, which we featured on the podcast before. Um, it looks at the persecution of women for witchcraft in, in the early modern period. And it's her whole concept behind this was, was being able to give a voice to women particularly, but to people generally who were persecuted, who never had a voice at the time. And you're doing a similar sort of thing, uh, although not in the aspect of giving a voice, by, by re-gendering or, or twisting the gendering of, of the stories you're telling. Tell us a little bit about the role of women within some of these traditional tales. I know this is something else that you've written about in the past, um, older women in, in fairy tales, for example. Um, and how they were represented, and, and how you're representing them in your retellings. Well, it seems to me, and, and perhaps this is one of the reasons that the child ballads are are not as popular in terms of expansion into popular culture as, let's say, Grimm's fairy tales, although they are equally equally grim in a lot of ways. Um, I think in in some ways it could be because an awful lot of them, you read them, it's not normal for people to read all of the child ballads one after the other, but I did. And one of the things that really struck me is how very misogynistic a lot of them are. Um, a lot of them are about violence to women, murdered women, women being raped or women being deceived in some way and the man getting away with it. 
There's a lot of that. A lot of the stories are centered around men as the active heroes or as the villains, if you like. And women fall into a number of categories. One is the victim. Over and over and over again, you get the woman as the murder victim and she's always young and she's always pretty and she's always murdered and it's super sad. And then maybe a ghost um, comes and punishes the, the attacker and maybe not, or maybe he goes mad and kills himself. But either way, it's still the girl in the skip trope, medieval style, and it occurs over and over again. Or you have the woman as the wicked deceiver. So there she is sexually active, but in a bad way. So she's a witch. She's a seductress. And the poor guy gets taken in and, and horrible things happen. And sometimes that happens, not as often as I would like, but that too is another way of seeing women. And then you have the modest wife. And sometimes bad things happen to the modest wife. But nearly always in these ballads, the women are sort of just secondary to the man's story. And over and over again, this happens, that the man encounters women and they only really matter in terms of what they mean to him. And so I thought, okay, well, what these ballads need is a little bit of regendering. Let's see what we can do with that. And so with A Pocket Full of Crows, which is Child Ballad, The Brown Girl, which is about the seducing of an innocent girl by a young man who is rich and, and powerful. And she sort of gets her own back because she puts a curse on him. But I, I wanted to, to, to center that story more around her and more about her experience. And I also made it a racial relevance because I wasn't sure why in that story she was a brown girl. And I wanted to, to look at, you know, was she of a different race? Was she, was she just brown because she, she lived outside? Um, was this, um, something about beauty norms. And, and so I, I created a slightly different narrative around it and with the, with the Blue Salt Road, which is a Selkie story. And Selkie stories are nearly always about women's Selkies being enslaved by men. So I flipped it round and I looked at the dynamic between genders and I thought, well, what if it was a Selkie man? What would that mean? Um, again, I had a little play around with, with race and, and I also wanted to make it a statement about women and their respective power to men and, and what that happens, what, what, what happens there. And in both those stories, I had three generations because I think that we have a lot of young women in folklore. And, and that's partly because young women are pretty and therefore appealing to the men who might be telling the story. But they're also nearly always either victims or rewards. They're always either the poor, sad, murdered girl out of whose hair is made the strings of the golden harp that, you know, the guy goes to hell to, to play, or they're the reward for the guy who kills the monster. So they're basically either the cookie or the girl in the skip. Hmm. And I thought this isn't fair to women at all. Let's, let's, let's play with that. And let's, let's give some agency to some of these women. And also let's, let's look at women of different generations because so many of the stories are about, the cookie girl eventually getting her prince and everything ends in a marriage. But, you know, what happens later? You know, does she, does she even live for any longer than that? So older women in fairy tales are either just wicked witches or jealous queens. And, and I thought, well, that's, that's, that's a bit of a bad story. We must have a look at that and see if we can redress the balance. So 
Orfea is definitely not, um, she is not a wicked witch or a jealous queen, nor is she a sort of young ingenue. She's, um, she's a woman with an adult daughter, so she's got to be at least in her 40s or older. And it's quite refreshing to see that, I think, because we don't often get roles for women who are, shall we say, of less sexual interest to men than the young ingenue. No, no, absolutely. And it is, uh, it is great to see a retelling in that way. And I'm just thinking about the fact as well that actually what really pleases me within folklore uh, as, as an area of study, if you like, is that I'm just uh, thinking back across the last uh, 70, 80 years or so um, in a society where as, as organisations like the Folklore Society and the Society for Psychical Research were, were developing under their very white middle to upper class patriarchy that actually all the best folklore collectors were women all the people who collected this folklore that we work with now were not the you know white male university professors they were the ladies that lived out in the communities and if they didn't do that we wouldn't be talking about this in the way that we are now absolutely Even Child's ballads, you see, were largely collected by his wife, who doesn't get much credit at all for this. But yes, I mean, this is a double-edged sword, of course, because it's seen as a particularly female interest by a lot of people. It's also dismissed by a lot of people. I still, you know, because I write books that are sold as literary fiction and also books that are sold as fantasy fiction, I get to inhabit two worlds. I'm a bit like Faye in this sense. And I hear a lot of particularly male authors sneering at fairy tales in a way that suggests that they think they're just trivial things for women and children. It doesn't say a lot about them to me, but it's obviously still a wide, a wide held view. Mm. And, and there's something slightly shocking in that level of ignorance, it seems to me, because it's, it's a refusal to look at a whole swathe of cultural history mm. um, just because there are girls in it, which, yeah. which doesn't say much for the, the middle-aged white literary novelist. Uh, no, no, that's very true. And, and also, I guess that you also prove with... You know, like like a lot of other authors, when you write in different genres, sometimes you style yourself slightly differently. And and for you, that that's putting a middle initial in your name. Yes. <laughs> yes, I decided that. You don't feel the I... need to write under a different name or or under a different gender, even depending on the style that you're writing in. No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, I don't think. I mean, I personally don't see the need to differentiate between genres at all. Mm. However, the industry likes it. And I also find that readers can be very set in their ways. And I know that some of my readers will not read something if they think it's fantasy. I also have readers who won't read something if they don't think it's fantasy. And so it's only fair to say to people, you know what, look at the cover. If it's got an M in it, then you will find more overt elements of folklore and fantasy than if it doesn't. I mean, I would argue, actually, that all of my books have some element of these things in them. All of them. Even the ones that are kind of psychological thrillers set in a very northern version of the real world. Even they have elements of it. But I think that some people, um, 
Some people like to have a kind of fluidity of interpretation. And when you look at Chocolat, for instance, I knew when I was writing it that I didn't want to, to take it so far into magic that people who just refused to have a story in their lives with magic in it would, would not be able to follow me. And so I thought, okay, we'll position it here where some people who are fine with magic go, yeah, she's a witch. She's a witch and she grants wishes and, and her medium is chocolate. Fine, easy mm-hmm. story. Or people who go, ah, yes, well, you know, she's culturally different and she has these feelings about herself, but this is all because of her perception of the world. And, and actually I can step away from this witch thing if I want to, because it's just the way she thinks, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is also fine. I mean, people, people open a book and they can see what they like in it. And because books are Rorschach tests, but I mean, even then I was writing a lot about folklore and I was a bit surprised that so many people didn't notice that and thought that I was writing about food. (laughs) Of course, food in folklore is a massive subject anyway. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's a whole should have been a giveaway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it really should, shouldn't it? This kind of leads me on to, to the other point that I wanted to address before we finish. And that is something that you say on your website um, and have written out about on your website. And that is that, um, I mean, exactly what, what you said, but the literary world owes a debt to folklore. It certainly does. How does it do that? Well, it owes a debt to folklore because if we embrace the theory that there are only a certain number of stories, and I know that some people think it's seven and some think it's 12, but either way, they are all of them the classic stories from folklore. We owe them that debt. We owe, folklore has helped shape the evolution of storytelling. In fact, I would think that you know, there wouldn't be any storytelling without it because the first stories ever told were all fantasy stories they were all about folklore Gilgamesh is folklore Beowulf is folklore Shakespeare is absolutely full of it you know we 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 don't it's not just Grimm's fairy tales this is an old old tradition the the construction of narratives with beginnings middle and ends that in itself is one of the debts that we owe to folklore we owe a lot of the characters that that we recognize from stories to folklore. And actually, I would argue that originality in itself is not necessarily a desirable thing in stories. We don't relate to what's absolutely new. As readers, we relate to what we recognize. We go, ah, yes, that character reminds me of so-and-so. That character's just like my grandma. That character could be me. Because this is how we engage people. So the whole business of pulling in readers by telling them a story is a tradition established through folklore. So there's that, and that's important. But also I think because folklore has informed so many of the stories that we were brought up with, we unconsciously replicate the patterns of folklore. In musical terms, Folklore is the eight-note scale. We can play anything we like on it. The music can vary. We can have all sorts of weird variations, but actually the tones, the semitones, the the intervals, the chords, they they were all there. We can't get away from those. And I think folklore is like that. It's, It's part of the language. And however experimental a literary novelist feels they're being, 
I can guarantee that I can look in their book and find something that they owe to folklore, even though they're not aware of it. Yes. Because you can't take it out of the human experience. No, absolutely. Or the literary experience. And, and that's why it is phenomenally arrogant of any literary novelist to feel that they are above those things or that those things have never influenced them at all. No, because it's embedded in our everyday, isn't it? No, no matter what you're doing, it's, it's there in some form because we've been around for quite a long time as a species. We have, and we've been connecting with each other ever since, and that's yeah. what story's about. Absolutely. So we've got lots and lots of different themes within folklore that crop up in, in all of these different books. So, uh, where do you want to go next with this? What, what other themes are you wanting to explore that you haven't done yet? Oh, there are so many. Um, and it's not just themes either, it's stories. I mean, there are some stories that I just love to come back to. Mm. Um, now, I have got a book coming out next year, which is, which is 100 stories. Some of them I wrote on Twitter. A lot of them I wrote on Twitter, actually. And it's, um, it is, I think, one of the big themes in folklore. It is the, the redemption journey theme. And so some of my stories are isolated stories. But because it's called Honeycomb, I wanted to express the idea that each of the stories, even though it doesn't necessarily feed into the main overarching plot connect to that world in some way and so it's a kind of little journey through a whole kind of bell curve of stories if you like with an overarching theme which is the story of a hero or an anti-hero who starts off bad who goes through a number of learning experiences and finally gets redemption I quite like that I think it's it's in a sense it's the basic coming of age story at least coming of age on a, a kind of moral um, platform. And that's nice. Um, one of my favorite pieces of folklore has always been, um, has always been the Pied Piper. And mm. I would love to write a whole, a whole novel about the Pied Piper because he keeps popping in, in into my, my folklore tales. I, I keep seeing him from time to time and, and referring to him. And I'd quite like to, to center a whole book around him in some way. Mm. because I mean in a sense I've been doing this with everything that I write because he is the archetypal a stranger arrives story yes and nearly all my stories are about this I mean chocolate is about a stranger arriving um you know I, I do this all the time I write about communities which are blown apart by the arrival of one person and their influence and and I'm interested in in how that happens and, and how the chemistry of a community, which is inevitably volatile anyway, benefits or sometimes doesn't by the arrival of a stranger. And this is one of the things that my, my literary books and my fantasy books all have in common. They, they, they're all about the stranger and the disruption, the disruptive element of the stranger within an established community. So, yeah, I've been doing that in stealth for all these years. <laughs> Probably will keep on doing that. I like, it's a nice idea, isn't it? I like, I like the idea of, of, we've been talking about repurposing in lots of different ways, repurposing stories. One thing. I, I like this whole concept of repurposing Twitter as, as like the new Scrivener, if you like. You know, we'll, we'll now write on Twitter and then pull it off of there and turn it into stories. Well, Twitter is, Twitter's different because Twitter is, is halfway between the oral tradition and the written tradition. 
Yes. There is something absolutely conversational about Twitter, mm. which is why people think of, of themselves as speaking to people on Twitter, because it's reactive, because it's brief, because there is this essential character limit, which, which meant that when I was writing stories on Twitter, and I still do this from time to time, it was important to, to think of each sentence in isolation and to think about its length and exactly what you were trying to express so that it would stand alone. And you can tell when I've written something on Twitter and when I haven't, because when I've just got, you know, a page of word document in front of me, my paragraphs go on eternally. And so do my sentences, but in my folk stories, which are written in this kind of concise uh, Twitter style, um, you know, there is a kind of rhythm and you look at the rhythm, it, it's, it's not quite blank verse, it's not quite Alexandrines, but there is a sort of rhythm to it. And when you look at it, yeah, it's the Twitter rhythm. Yeah. It's the rhythm of the Twitter character limit, which, I mean, it's, it's a strange thing to say, but it's, it's emerging to me as a kind of narrative rhythm, mm. exactly like any other. Like it's, 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 it's almost like a song. It's, it's almost like poetry. It is. It is. It's an interesting style. And it'll be fascinating to see if it develops and where it goes and whether, whether other people kind of work with it in the same way. So Honeycomb comes out next year. Um, next year, if, if I can get, um, if I'm absolutely sure that my, my illustrator, who is not Bonnie, uh, because this, this, this book has existed for, for quite some years now. I've been waiting for my illustrator, who is Charles Vess, to finish his work. Um, if it all comes off, yes, it will come out in spring. Excellent. Uh, and, and what else have you got on the work in progress pile that we should be excited about? Well, I'm writing one of my thrillers, which is called A Narrow Door, um, which is in the same world as Gentlemen and Players and A Different Class. It's not quite the same, though. I think it's got a slightly supernatural edge to it, which I'm really enjoying. Um, I'm also writing another Loki book, where, um, which carries on from my, my last rune book. So um, this is a kind of attempt to, to meld two different kinds of mythology. So I'm, I'm using Norse mythology as my standpoint, but I'm also taking my gods to south america and so to the land of blood and chocolate and we'll see how how that works because i i quite like the idea of these two cultures which seem incredibly different and yet mythologically have a lot in common with each other they both have a world tree they both have a universe of nine worlds they, they both have a god with a hammer for heaven's sake you know there has to be something in that yeah. so i thought wouldn't it be interesting to to juxtapose those two mythologies and see see what came of it and of course it's you know it's still in its early days but i'm i'm really enjoying that journey oh there's lot there's lots to work with there isn't there so i, I hope we'll drag you back on at some point and, and we can have a chat on the kind of the broader uh folklore podcast book club strand about some of this other writing uh, in the meantime um lots and lots of people listening are, are already going to be familiar with at least part of your writing work and will have written your stuff but if not then Orfea I don't know why I'm going to wave it at this video but I will for people who are watching <laughs> this rather than listening um it is now out came out a couple of weeks ago as we record this uh and I think is a great kind of springboard in if people haven't read your work before because being a novella it's very 
concentrated. It's um, got some deep themes, but is a really kind of light read and, and engages you so that you're going to just sit there and bow through it, I think, as I did. Uh, and is widely available, not just online, but from independent bookshops, which are a great place to buy books, and where I would always recommend people go first if, if they can. Uh, but also available as um, an ebook and an audio book read by. Yes, yes I, I read the audio book. Yes, read by um, yourself. So, yeah. That would be that would be nice if you want to hear me read for four and a half hours. That's uh, that's that's <laughs> your your choice. Was that the first one that you've done in audio? No, no, I did. I've done several. Um, I did a pocket full of crows. Um, I didn't do the Blue Salt Road because so much of it had Scottish accents that I wanted to have somebody who could actually do those properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did do the Strawberry Thief, which was my my latest um, in my Chocolat series. I did that one too. So. And how I get on very well with the audio people. How do you find it's the actually, It's great fun. I really enjoy it. I mean, actually, with The Strawberry Thief and Orfea, I cried buckets. But, um, you know, it's, it's, um, I think it's a different experience. Being read to is a different experience to reading on the page. It's a different experience to being told a story or to experiencing a story through illustration or music. And I just like the idea that these stories have, have these different aspects that they can, they can go into. Um, I, <laughs> I've done a lot of reading aloud in one way or another. I did when I was a teacher. I did when my daughter was, was growing up. I've had a lot of practice. And, and I think sometimes readers like to, to hear how the author means something to sound, rather mm. than an interpretation by an actor which is inevitably another form of translation and sometimes a really good one too, but it's, it's going to be different because everybody translates a text in a different way. They do. And do you find that uh, you come out the other end of that thinking, do you know what? I was really happy with what I wrote or do you occasionally come out and think, Oh, I wish I'd changed that when you read. Oh, I have to stop myself from editing Hmm. because anything that's finished, it's, it's only finished at that particular moment. So I'm always thinking, oh, I could have done that, or mm. hmm, maybe I should have changed that word. Sometimes I come to it and think, I have no memory of having written that paragraph at all. <laughs> Who stepped in and wrote that? And, and sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes I think, wow, that's, that's really pretty good. I can't have written that. Yeah, goblins must have stepped in and typed it while I was making a <laughs> cup of tea or something. Because I forget what I wrote. I, I forget very quickly. And, yeah. and so... By the time I get to read it, it's usually a year after I finished it, and I think, "Wow, oh, who wrote this?" Um, it, it's necessary. I think it's a necessary kind of objectivity that you have to achieve as a writer, because the last thing you want to do is to be, you know, super close to your text all the time, particularly when it's just coming out and you're going to get reviews and and mm-hmm. reader feedback and stuff. By then, I'm always working on something else. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I've always stepped away. You have to draw the line, don't you? I, I find this as well, <clears throat> but as a non-fiction writer, that you've just got to stop and draw the line because otherwise you'll be forever going, oh, that's really interesting when you come across a new piece of information. I could work that. And you, you would never finish yeah. it. You, you have to move on. I think, you know, one of the secrets of, of being a writer is that you're always going to be afraid of finishing. You always have to confront that fear and actually just do it. Yeah. Because otherwise 
you know, you'll be like that guy in Camus the Plague who never finishes the first sentence of his book because he's always refining it. <laughs> yes, uh, but, but then I suppose, to put it, putting a folkloric twist on this to finish, that this is how stories develop, isn't it? Retelling Absolutely. And, retelling, um, and just because you finish it, it doesn't mean that it's the end of the story. Of course not, which is why we love folklore, because actually folklore is always being retold. And the reason we do this is that we don't want those stories to die. If you write something down, that's it. That's the definitive version. Something that's passed from mouth to mouth or that is retold in different ways and modernized by different people, that stays alive forever. That's why I'm still telling stories about Loki and Thor um, rather than you know, leaving them in the 13th century with Snorri. <laughs> and and thankfully you do and i know a lot of people will be very pleased that you do and please continue to do so uh but in the i meantime, don't think i could stop if you paid me to <laughs> <laughs> good in the meantime joanne thank you so much for taking the time to to come and talk about orfea and your other work and we shall look forward to hearing and seeing and reading far more from you in the future thank you thank you I was really delighted that Joanne emailed the podcast to ask to come on, and she'll hopefully be back in the future to talk about more of her writing on the Folklore Podcast Book Club. If you haven't caught it yet, these are programmes on our YouTube channel which focus on books of folklore interest. Many of them are interviews with the authors, but there will be other content going up there too, blogging about and reviewing books. If you want to be a part of the book club, then email and let us know. Reviewers are always welcome, as are authors working with folklore, and publishers. If you want to watch the book club, do please subscribe to the YouTube channel. You'll be able to elect to get notifications when new videos go up, and the more subscribers we have, the more visible our content will be. It's free and easy to do, and really helpful. Thank you. If you're listening to this episode before Halloween you can still book for our one-day online Gothic conference. Visit bit.ly slash ruralgothic for full details. The latest special guest to be added to the lineup is actor and Hammer Horror film historian Jonathan Rigby. The Folklore Podcast and its other content only continues thanks to your support. If you can, please join our Patreon pages at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast where you can enjoy more exclusive content for a small monthly subscription. Just a dollar a month really does help. You can visit our homepage at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter for free, and also make a one-off donation if you feel so inclined. In any case, please continue to engage with our social media and share our content and posts. Thank you so much for being with us. On October the 31st, I'll be releasing a special bonus episode where you can enjoy a ghost story for Halloween, so watch out for that. In the meantime, here is Joanne reading from her new book, Orphea. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. My plaid away, my plaid away, and o'er the hill and far away, and far away to Norway, my plaid shall not be blown away. Child Ballad Number Two, The Elfin Knight. Chapter One. When Daisy Orr was six, she began to avoid the cracks in the pavement. It 
started as an unusual attentiveness to paving slabs, a reluctance to walk over cobblestones, and evolved into a complex series of skips and jumps and diversions designed to carry her safely across the many pavements of London. Children are ritualistic. Their lives are filled with ancient lore. Step on a crack, break your mother's back, acquires a grim significance for a child who has just lost her father. But six is a resilient age. While her mother struggled with grief, Daisy was coming to terms with death in a way she could control. The pavement game was Daisy's way of making sense of the irrational. This, at least, was what her mother believed. Later, she came to reassess her reading of the pavement game. But by then it was too late, and she herself had slipped through a crack into a world without Daisy. There should be a word, Faye Orr tells herself, for a woman who loses a child. A woman who loses a husband can at least put a name to her loss. She is a widow. Her grief has a name. That name gives her a narrative. But this is a different kind of grief. She is a woman who has lost a child. She was a mother. Now she is not. Now she does not know who she is. Now she is adrift, alone. Nameless, she casts no shadow. Who am I? She asks herself. What am I doing in this world? It all seems very wrong, and there is no one here to tell her what to do. She has tried counselling. It doesn't work. Words and affirmations have no meaning anymore. How are you feeling this morning, Faye? She wants to say something. Really, she does. But the question is meaningless. What is there to feel? Daisy is gone. Her daughter is gone. In her place, there is nothing. Why don't we look at your diary, Faye? Ah, yes, she thinks. The diary. It's supposed to help her counsellor, whose name is Janine, and who thinks that Faye would benefit from sharing her thoughts, understand how she fills her days. Faye would like to explain to Janine that she has no thoughts. She is only a mechanism, going through the meaningless rituals over and over every day. You're keeping fit. That's good, Faye. Janine is a great believer in the healing properties of exercise. As if tighter calves or more defined abdominals might help her reach an epiphany. Faye knows better. The running has become a compulsion. Kings crossed to Trafalgar Square without stepping on a single crack. Euston Road to Regent's Park without thinking of Daisy. The thing is, Daisy is everywhere. Daisy at three. Daisy at six. Daisy dead at twenty-one, stolen away by the shadowless man. Children look to their parents to tell them monsters don't exist. But what if they do? Faye asks herself. What if the monsters were here all along, but only Daisy saw them? This is excellent progress, Faye. Any more dreams? She shakes her head. 
there are no dreams she wants to share. Dreams are how this all began. Besides, there's only one dream that counts. She has it almost every night. She dreams she could have saved Daisy somehow, that she could have known what was happening. It's not your fault, Janine repeats. There's nothing else you could have done. Daisy was suffering from a neurological disorder. She was off her medication. There was no way you could have known. But that isn't true. There have always been ways. Secret ways to see the world through dreams and charms and mysteries. Daisy believed in the power of dreams, though Faye dismissed her fantasies. And now, every night, Faye dreams that she arrived in time to save her. That instead of those 24 hours she spent in ignorance, watching TV, going to the gym, sitting in the garden and listening to the sound of the birds, she had somehow instinctively known. That instead of reading an email, she had guessed by osmosis. And now there is no way to banish the thought. Daisy fell through the pavement cracks. I wasn't there to save her. And so she runs. She runs through the pain. When she can no longer run, she walks until she can run again. The pain is like a dark cloud that shows no sign of lifting. People are no more than shadows here. Only the cracks in the pavement are real. Sometimes Faye wonders whether it is she who has slipped through the world somehow. She feels she has become as flat and blank as a piece of paper, trapped between the pages of a continuous narrative in which Daisy's death replays over and over, like a fragment of dialogue that no longer has any meaning. Once she might have turned to music to console herself. Music has been at the heart of Faye's life. Music, singing and the stage. It was her husband's life as well. He was a concert pianist. But Alan Orr is as dead as an empty stage in the moonlight. And Daisy is a silent ghost that music cannot exercise. And so Faye runs. Always at night, along the towpath from King's Cross, or along Euston Road into the West End, Shaftesbury Avenue, Leicester Square, Piccadilly Circus. She likes to run in the small hours, when there is no one else around but the homeless people. Barely visible by day, at night, when the theatres and pubs are closed, when the last tube home has gone, they come out into the light of the bright shop windows. And there they sit, drinking and smoking on the tiled floors by the department stores, wrapped in blankets and bedclothes like children up late on Christmas Eve. Faye feels no urge to speak to them, and yet she feels a kinship. They too have slipped through the cracks. They too cast no shadow. She has no destination in mind. She has no sense of time passing. She feels no sense of achievement at having run so far, so fast. The best she can possibly hope for, she knows, is the oblivion of exhaustion. 
and so she runs with her backpack through the broad, bare London streets, in her running shoes that do not match her leggings or her T-shirt. Runs past the displays of jewellery, of toys and household objects, feet pounding the pavement slabs, running as if from a predator. And yet, there is something different tonight. Something in the air, perhaps. She remembers that it is Michaelmas, the end of the harvest season. Even the city knows it somehow, in its ancient forest heart. The shadows will lengthen after this. The city will swing into darkness. The leaves are already falling fast. There is a change in the sound of the wind. And tonight the sky is cold and clear, with the full moon standing sentinel. There are no stars in London. The city is too bright for their pure, cold light to compete. But the moon is full for the second time this month, and larger than she remembers. They call that a blue moon, she tells herself. She does not recall how she knows this. The blue moon rises above Shaftesbury Avenue, luminous as a jellyfish. She moves to get a better view, and as she does, her foot catches on something. Only on looking down does she realise that the paving stone on which she is standing is cracked right down the middle. For a moment she is still, looking down at the paving stone. It must be a trick of the moonlight, but in that moment it looks as if the stone is illuminated from below, as if there is a crack in the world through which a light is shining. She does not know for how long she stands, pinned by that mysterious light. But it is in that time, seconds or hours she does not know, that Faye slips through the crack in the worlds into another story. <laughs>